If you abide, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and it will set you free. If you abide, you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and it will set you free. You know, I love that song because it talks about truth. And it talks about if we abide in the Lord and if we obey Him and live in truth that He sets us free. Amen? At this time, we are so uh, honored to have Patrick Walton here. Patrick is on staff at uh, Kansas City IHOP along with the rest of the team. The IHOP organization is um, a great organization. I don't know how well you know them. They're around since 1999 or so, I believe. And uh, they're all missionaries. They all raise their own financing. None of them are really paid on staff that, I've not, that I know of. They're kind of like youth with a mission, uh, which I'm familiar with because our daughter was there for a couple of years. But each one of these people come in because they feel called to come to be a part of this worship ministry. Um, very powerful. And um, Patrick's going to come and teach us the word this morning. And uh, so would you just welcome him with me? Amen. 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 You can go up there and you can just teach us some truth, brother. Okay. And uh, I've got some more copies coming for those that didn't receive uh, some notes that we'll get some more to you in a minute. Well, good morning. Are we alive? Yes. It's beautiful. Your state is beautiful. This is my first time in Michigan, so I feel like an honorary Michigander. I am born and raised in the northwest part of our country, and I've lived for the past two and a half years in Kansas City, Missouri. I have a beautiful wife who is my much better half, and I have two lovely children that just had birthdays this past week. They're two years and three days apart, so my son just turned four on Tuesday, and my daughter Anna just turned just turned two on Friday. So their birthdays are two years and three days apart. And uh, my lovely wife is at home. My mom flew from Washington to Missouri. I was there for two days and then I left. So I feel like a bad son. But when you have kids, your parents don't really come to see you anymore anyway. They just come for the grandkids and I'm okay with that. My, my parents love our kids and so do Jen's parents. Well, it's really an honor to be here today. We want to say thanks to the Ways for letting us come and minister to you guys and spend time. I so appreciate your pastors. Do you guys love your pastors? Yeah. Yeah, he's tremendous. We spent some time talking on the phone and hearing his story and what it is that the Lord's doing in your midst. We're really glad to be here this morning. And we want to say thanks to Jackie as well. She orchestrated some of this and made a way for us to come in and helped us with sound this morning. Such a blessing, such a servant's heart here at the church. Well, we've been ministering throughout your state. We've been up in Indian River and uh, we'll be in Kalamazoo. And then we're going to work our way over into Illinois. And we'll be with a group in Rockford, Illinois, talking about what Jesus is doing throughout the earth. And I'm hoping that that's okay if I talk a little bit about that this morning. We've got far more notes than we have time to cover, so we won't get through them all. But I want to talk to you about the three primary things that I believe that the Holy Spirit is doing in our hour. If we really had time, I would talk about five things I believe that the Holy Spirit is doing that I would call main and plain uh, from the Word of God. Now, it would be hard for us to quantify how many things that the Holy Spirit's doing in our hour. It would be impossible to actually put a number on it. But when I read the Bible from Genesis to the Revelation, I see a plan of redemption that God has threaded through the Word of God that begins in Genesis and climaxes in the Revelation. And this morning, I just want to take a moment to talk about three of those five primary things. I believe that they are sequential in order as well. So the first thing we're going to talk about is God's intention to raise up a night and day song in every nation of the earth, unto the worth of Jesus. We'll talk a little bit about the house of prayer and what God's doing with this song. But from this global song that the Holy Spirit's orchestrating, 
God's committed to bringing forth a mature church in the nations. Jesus intends that his church look like the way that he's presented it through the scriptures. And he's committed to having it. And I believe that this song that the Lord's emerging in the nations is central to bringing forth a mature church. That'll be the second thing. The third thing that we'll look at just briefly is God's commitment to take the gospel to every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. From a night and day song, the Lord will bring forth a mature church, and that mature church will be a part of that final thrust to take the gospel to every known people on the earth. But that's not the end of God's story. We know that as the nations come to know who Jesus is, as Paul tells us in Romans 11, specifically the Gentiles, that the Lord's going to shift the interest of the church back to a little geographic piece of land in the Middle East as He centers His affection on the nation of Israel. If we had time to talk about it, we would talk about the global evangelization and how it will lead to the salvation of the nation of Israel. And that culminates with Jesus' physical return. Those are the five primary things that I see taking place from Genesis to the Revelation. This night and day song, bringing forth a mature church, thrusting out workers that are fueled by love, focusing the energy back to the nation of Israel, and culminating with Jesus' return back to the planet. That's glorious. That's what the book of Acts refers to as the restoration of all things. Jesus is intending to put life in this age back together in the way that He intended it to be. And you and I have a part that we play in that. You guys with me? Amen. Well, let's pray real quick and we'll jump into a few of these notes. Jesus, we just thank you for today. We thank you for Centerpoint Assembly. Father, we thank you for the pastors. We thank you for the leaders. And we thank you for what you're doing in the great state of Michigan. Father, in this precarious season of human history, and specifically in American history, such monumental days that are on us, God. As this past week, our nine Supreme Court justice deliberated related to upholding a value of marriage between a man and a woman. And this coming Thursday, our national day of prayer. Father, we ask that you would have mercy on America. We ask that you would bring forth a bride that loves you in the way that you love her and that loves others and in the way that you love others. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to lead us and help us this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, you can see in your notes, Roman numeral 2, the global exaltation of Jesus. God the Father has purposed that His Son will be exalted in every tribe, tongue, nation, and people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And right now, throughout the nations of the earth, God is raising up a global worship and prayer movement that's centered on singing to the man Christ Jesus. Right now, as you and I gather together today, there is a song emerging in the nations that is unto the worth of the Lamb. Letter B, the Old Testament closes with a staggering verse in Malachi 1.11 that states of a future yet global worship movement where incense is emerging from every piece of property in the nations of the earth. This prophecy in Malachi was given at a time of Israel's history where they had abdicated their responsibility to present pure offerings before the Lord. And the Lord breaks in through the prophet Malachi and He says, My intention is that you would not bring me an impure offering." That you wouldn't bring me that which you took from somebody else for more, and you're actually offering it to me for less. My intention is that I would have a people who would offer me a pure offering, even from the rising of the sun to its going down. Let's look for a moment at Malachi 1.11. The prophet Malachi says, For from the rising of the sun, even unto its going down, my name shall be great. He prophesies. My name currently is not, but it shall be great among the nations. And in every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great 
among the nations or the Gentiles, says the Lord of hosts. Although night and day prayer meetings are springing up on nearly every continent and in cities all throughout the earth, you and I have to understand that this is not a new church growth model. What we're seeing take place in the earth is the substance, actually rather it's the shadow of a heavenly substance. We're trying to understand what it is that's taking place in heaven, and we're working to mirror that on the earth. And the Bible tells us that in heaven, there's an unbroken song that's sung to the worth of the Lamb. And when Jesus told us to pray in Matthew 6, part of His prayer was that we would ask that His kingdom would come and His will would be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. It's not that we're trying to tell the Lord, in heaven as it is on earth. We want to tell the Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' intention is not to fill heaven with earth, but actually to fill earth with heaven. And part of that heavenly scenario is that there's an unbroken song that's being sung to the worth and the majesty of Jesus. Look at letter D. It's critical that as you and I labor to build the church, we don't build primarily related to what's taking place in this age, but rather what's taking place in heaven. Now there's some things that you and I ought to do in you know, building the church, like raising money for the roof. You don't have to pray about that. Is it leaking? Does it need to be repaired? Well, let's raise some money and fix it. The Lord goes, well done. But there's other things when it comes to governing the church that we ought not use life in this age as our pattern and our template. We ought to find out what it is that the Bible says, what it is that's taking place around heaven, what it is that's being sung to the Lamb, and we ought to work to make our church reflect that pattern. Jesus is intended to bring forth a Bible-centered church that's founded on the truth of the Word of God. As Paul said in Acts 20, the entirety of the Word of God, not a portion of it, but all of the Word of God. Look at letter E. Night and day worship is actually our response to the indescribable worth of Jesus. It's our response to the beauty and the worth and the majesty of Jesus. The church must rediscover her once lofty view of the glory of God so that she can deliver the church from boredom and move her into a place of fascination. When you and I don't see the beauty and the majesty and the worth of Jesus, our life in Christ begins to take on an element of boredom. It begins to take on an element of monotony. We lose our interest in being a part of the Great Commission. But when you and I tap into that heavenly scenario, when you and I look at that heavenly scene, the beauty and the worth, the song that's being sung night and day, it moves our heart from a place of boredom into a, fa a place of fascination. And much of the church, in my opinion, in my own life as well at times, is more bored than they are fascinated. They're, not dis they're disinterested in a spiritual life in God. Beloved, I'm the same way as you. I mean, I struggle with the same things. It's a war to keep my life centered in the place of prayer, in the place of fasting, in the place of generosity, in the place of studying the scriptures and loving my family and being on mission with Jesus in the Great Commission. It's a war. It's a fight. It's a labor. And Jesus understands that you and I have to press past the barriers of comfort and boredom, but the best way to do that is actually a heart that's fascinated. When you and I capture worth and beauty and majesty, it it makes our heart alive on the inside, and all of those disciplines, they actually become naturally. They start to flow out of us instead of something that we're laboring to do. When we lose our interest for studying the Scriptures, when we lose our interest for prayer, when we lose our interest for generosity, when we lose our interest for serving, 
Those are indicators that we're sick at the heart level. Beloved, it ought not be said that Jesus' church is disconnected from a vibrant life in God. This is our inheritance, to be alive at the heart level. To love Him in the way that He loves us, and to love others in the way that He loves others. We want to move from a place of boredom into a place of fascination, and the best way to do that is to get caught up in Jesus. Is to rediscover this once lofty view that the church has held. The church throughout history has held very lofty views of the glory of God. The supremacy of Christ in all things. The throne of God, that He is the Lord and I'm not. When you and I put Jesus back on the throne, we find ourselves falling in line underneath Him and it moves us into a place of worship and devotion. We move out of a place of boredom. Something we like to say in Kansas City is that 24-7 is our restraint. It's all that we can give Jesus. But He's actually worth 25-8. How do you quantify how much worship Jesus is worthy of? Beloved, He's the centerpiece of heaven. He's the fixture of beauty. He's the personification of glory. This indescribable man who has no beginning and no ending, personified with truth, love, and righteousness. Our restraint is to worship Him 24-7. It's all that we can give. When IHOP Casey started in 1999, Mike's been pastoring in the Kansas City metro area for about 40 years. But in 1999, he transitioned out of Metro Christian Fellowship and he planted IHOP KC with a small band of people, about 50 people. And they sang to Jesus about 18 hours a day. About 50 people in four little trailers that we refer to as the Bethlehem Stables. It's a very humble beginning, but it started by sowing a golden seed of the Word of God into the ground and trusting that the Lord would fulfill that which He promised. And by September 19th of 1999, we took the locks off the doors, and the worship has been going until this very moment, unbroken. It's never ceased for one minute. We're coming up on 16 years. Jesus has been exalted day and night, night and day. There's around 2,000 staff and students now, about 700 of us, all these musicians and families that are here with us today, we're all full-time missionaries that raise our own financial partnership teams to fuel a prayer meeting that's impacting the nations both in worship and in prayer. But when IHOP KC started, there were around 20 ministries in the earth that considered themselves to be night and day prayer ministries. The longest of them is functioning since the mid-1970s in Seoul, Korea, up on Prayer Mountain with Dr. Yonggi Cho. They've been leading a prayer meeting since the mid-1970s that goes to this very moment. It's a church of nearly a million people. Full gospel church. When IHOP KC started, there were around 20 ministries that were functioning 24 hours a day in 1999. By the time we had celebrated our 10-year anniversary, there were over 10,000 ministries that were functioning 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Unbroken in their worship. On nearly every continent. On top of those 10,000, there's another 15,000 that are doing at least 80 hours a week or more. Do you know that you have a multitude of ministries in your own state that are contending for a night and day exaltation of Jesus? In every state in our union, there is a, a remnant of people that have caught a glimpse that Jesus is worthy to be exalted from the rising of the sun, even unto its going down. Look at letter G at the bottom of your notes. Isaiah was the first one who prophesied about the house of prayer. But it was actually Jesus in the New Testament that restated the prophetic passion of God's heart. At the start of Jesus' ministry in John 2, and at the close of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 21, He walked into His Father's house, and what did He say? 
You've turned it into a den of thieves, but my intention is that it would actually be a house of prayer. That it be a place of encounter. That it be a place of exaltation. That it be a place of divine inhabitation from my Father, so that when the nations interact with the family of God, they actually encounter God. Beloved, Jesus' intention for you when you leave this building as you interact with neighbors and co-workers and family, is that they actually experience God through your life. Not just in this building, but sure in this building. But as you and I disband from the church and go all of our separate ways into the marketplace, into homes, all of our occupations, our careers, our family, sports, all the things that we do in life, the Lord intends that you and I would release the fragrance of Christ through our life. That when people encounter you, they actually encounter God. Here's the dilemma. If you and I aren't careful, we end up talking more about the house of the Lord than we do the Lord of the house. We end up talking more about the church and all of its programs than we do the reason why we're all involved in the church. Here's the dilemma. When you and I work to make Jesus relevant, we're actually working from a deficit. As if Jesus isn't relevant already. Are you sick? He can heal you. Are you discouraged? He can encourage you. Are you lost? He can save you. Do you need a word? He's got tons of them. Beloved, He's relevant. You don't have to do anything to make Jesus other than what He is. And when you and I talk about the church, we often present all of its programs and all the activities, and we forget to tell people the reason why we're involved in the ministry. Why we go. Why? Because we hear about Jesus. Because we live life in the family of God. Because we're hearing about the Bible. Our hearts are coming alive. It's impacting our children. Lives are being changed. Why? Because the glory of God is dwelling in our midst. That's what we want to be said of Centerpoint. All throughout your city is that God and His people dwell there. You need a touch from God, you've got to come to Centerpoint. You've got to meet somebody from the church. Before you and I call ourselves a house of counseling, you can go to the next page, a house of giving, a house of serving, a house of preaching, we are called to be a house of prayer. We're called to be a house of prayer. It doesn't mean that it's the only thing we do in the church, but it means that it's central to everything else that we do in the church. We want to be a people that are for Jesus first and for others second. Some people say, well, what's the house of prayer? How would you boil it down? And I would simply say, it's about putting the first commandment back into first place. Do you know that Jesus does not have first place in his church? I was telling some people recently, I've been studying a book about a guy who is a statistician. And he has spent about 20 years polling the church in our nation. Getting all of the information he can about why the church is where it is. And he came out with seven key conclusions that the church has to adjust in order for her to remain effective and on mission with Jesus. Do you know what the first thing is? That it has to return to Christ-centered preaching. That bothered me. I didn't understand. What else are we talking about? What else is there to do? It's his church. In his own church, he's not given the glory that's due his name. That ought not be so. It ought not be our central issue to remain and return back to Christ-centered preaching. Beloved, that ought to be the only thing that we're doing, is talking about the Lamb. I had a mentor friend who pastors a church of about 2,500 people, and I've pastored a church myself, and this dear mentor, who's a very sharp leader, he asked me what I was in the middle of preaching. And I said, well, I'm preaching a series on Jesus. And this was his response. He said, 
Lost people don't want to hear about Jesus. He goes, you got to talk about family, you got to talk about money, you got to talk about sex, you got to talk about kids. I was baffled. I thought, if you aren't talking about Jesus, then you ought to stop talking. What else is there to talk about? I do all of those other things because Jesus is first and center in my life. We must return to being a people who are about Jesus first and about others second. When I took over the church, I said, here's my priorities. I'm going to love Jesus first. I'm going to love my wife second. I'm going to love my kids third. And I'm going to love you, my congregation, fourth. And when I love you fourth, you'll be served much better than if I were to put you first. You'll be served a whole lot better if I put you fourth than if I put you first. Beloved, if Jesus isn't front and center in our life, everything else breaks down. And in just a moment, the trajectory of our life starts to drift in ways that you and I can't foresee. And we end up in the place where we are today. We need revival. We need a reformation of the church. We need Jesus to break in and touch it. Well, the second thing I want to look at for just a moment is God's commitment to bring forth a mature bride. This song is unifying the church under the man Christ Jesus, and it's forcing the body of Christ to move up into a place of maturity. Jesus intends for the church to grow up. That's what he wants it to do. We're going to look at that for a moment. Jesus' aim for the church worldwide is that she would first live in fellowship with the Godhead. Is that you and I, those of you in the room that are in relationship with Jesus, that you would first live in relationship with the Godhead. And from that relationship, that you would live in relationship with one another in the family of God, and it would go from there to fill the cities and the streets that we would actually love non-believers in the same way that Jesus has loved us. A passage that we talk about often in Kansas City is John 15, 9. And in John 15, 9, Jesus said, In the same way that the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. And then he gives us the command to abide in his love. The question you can ask is, how much does the Father love the Son? A lot. But Jesus says, in the same way that the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. You know what I hate about that verse is I usually end up at like John 15, 20 before I realize I just read over John 15, 9. And I go, oh, Holy Spirit, my heart is so dull. Would you blow my mind with the truth of that passage that I have been loved in the same manner, in the same measure, that the Father has loved the Son. Well, Jesus goes, I don't actually want it to stop there. I want it to cascade out of there and into the family of God that you would love your brothers and sisters in the same way that the Father has loved me, which is the same way that I've loved you. And we go, well, that's a tall order. And the Lord goes, but it's actually not over yet. I actually want you to extend that love outside of the family of God, and I want you to move it into the cities and the streets that you would love lost people in the same way that the Father has loved me. Which is the same way that I've loved you. Look at letter B. The Bible's clear in many places that the end of this age gives us a premier picture of where God is leading the church. And what we see is that it's not about a city, it's not about a region, it's not about a nation or a continent, but it's actually about a globe that's functioning as a, as a unified body of believers. That we're running together as a global family. Look at this verse in Ephesians 4. Paul gets finished telling us why he's given the fivefold ministry to the church. The apostle, the prophet, the pastor, the teacher, and the evangelist. It's so that those leaders, those fivefold those governing leaders inside of the church can actually equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The reason why those gifts are given to the church is so that they can in turn equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Why? Paul tells us right here. 
so that we all come. Now, I did a little bit of a word study here, and I looked up the word all in Greek, and you know what it said? It said all. It's crazy. I know. Whoa. Mind blown. Said all. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's a pretty tall order. Until an international family comes to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. But Paul doesn't stop. He says, I actually want it to come to a perfect man, even to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. Jesus is intending that His body of believers in the nations would actually come to the full measure and the stature of Himself as one unified global and corporate people that love Him in the same way that He loves us. But Paul doesn't stop. He says the, the reason for this is that we should no longer be children being tossed to and fro, but actually speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into all things. Who is the head? Christ. Beloved, let me tell you why your life is difficult. I got it right here. You don't have to read a book. You got it for free. Sunday morning, hour and a half. I'm going to give it to you. The reason why your life is difficult is because Jesus is trying to kill you. That's why your life is difficult. He's intentionally trying to crucify your flesh. Day in, day out, hour by hour, minute by minute, all of those little coincidences in your life that cause frustration and anxiety, those are all intentional gifts from Jesus to bring forth His Son in your life. And He's doing it with a smile. He's so happy. The Holy Spirit is a glad worker. I kind of liken the Holy Spirit to like a wedding coordinator. He's just running through the nations, preparing a bride for the Son. Oh, we've got to get rid of a few of these things. He goes, you're going to look so beautiful on that day. We go, I don't know. <laughs> this is pretty painful. He goes, oh, it's going to go more. He goes, but you're going to love it on that day. When you're presented before the Father as a pure and a spotless bride, He goes, you'll so appreciate all of the work right now. So just trust me. Don't fight against me. Because this is exhausting. All over the nations, everyone's fighting against me. Just agree with me. I'm doing it for your good. I know more about you than you know about yourself. And I know more about your eternal destination than I do your temporal. It's not so much about life in this age. Beloved, that's why you and I have such a difficulty responding to the will of God because we're tethered to life in this age. We don't want to let it go. And the Holy Spirit's just working overtime trying to pry our hands off this age, reminding us you're a pilgrim. You're a sojourner. You don't belong here. You're a vagabond. You're traveling. You're a gypsy. Pick up your stuff. Move on. You're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're looking for. So when the Lord comes and He touches our temporal life, we go, oh, I don't want to let go of those things. And the Lord goes, but you aren't going to keep them anyway. But they're mine. He goes, they're actually not yours. I gave them all to you. And we go, well, I worked hard for them. The Lord goes, you did work hard, but I'm the one that got you that job. I'm the one that gave you grace for 20 years without any sick days. I'm the one that kept all your appliances running. I'm the one that gave you all those deals on those home repairs. We go, Lord, that was you the whole time? He goes, that was me the whole time. So we go, oh, so it's really not my stuff. He goes, none of it. It's all come from me to you. My wife said the other morning, you know, it's with my four-year-old, but I'm, I'm teaching him. And she said something about him deserving this breakfast. We went out to breakfast with his birthday, and I said, he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. But we're happy to do it. It's a gift. Beloved, you deserved hell. And everything else that you get is a gift. Everything. Hell was your portion. Hell. Hell. Eternal separation from Jesus. 
And everything you've received after salvation is a gift from a benevolent Father. It all belongs to Him. He's the Lord and we're not. This is why our life's difficult. He's trying to form a global people into the image of His Son. We can't even do it in our households, let alone in one local church. Let alone in the family of God. Let alone cross-cultural barriers and joining all the nations of the earth together. I think when this whole thing is wrapped up and we stand before the Father, He's going to set out a giant sigh of relief and say, that was exhausting. You guys are like herding cats. It's like trying to get my kids into the car. You know, I'm using my hands and my feet and my elbows. You know, it's like... Get over it, son. Come here. Anna, get out of the puddle. What are you doing? It's like you're kicking balls back inside the house. You know, it's like the father's doing the same thing, trying to corral all these people together. It'd just be a lot easier if you guys would just obey. <laughs> I mean, all of our denominations and belief systems, all the separation, the hurt, and the pain in the family of God, the Lord wants to heal it. I spend a lot of time with people who don't speak in tongues. I don't have to speak in tongues in front of them. I don't got to do it. Why? Because I'm about bringing unity into the faith. It's something that I believe in. It's something I see as central. But I have other brothers and sisters that don't believe it. And when I'm with them, I don't have to do it. Why? Because I'm committed to bringing forth an international family that loves God in the same way that God loves us. And I want to play my part in the Great Commission. I want to honor my other brothers and sisters that don't believe the same way as me. I want to serve them. I want to be a part of helping bring unity. When I pastored the church, I was a part of this pastor's prayer meeting that was more like chit-chat and coffee time. I was like the youngest guy by like a lot of years. None of them believe the same way as me. None of them are interested in the same things I'm interested. None of them listen to the same teachers. They don't read the same books. We don't go to the same conferences. But I told all of those pastors in the city, I won't be a stick in the mud. I'm committed to being a part of this group. I'm going to pray with you. I'll chit-chat it up. I'll drink coffee with you. I want to hang out and spend time with you. Why? Because I am about bringing unity into the city. I don't have to divide. Beloved, this is a sign and a wonder in our day. The Lord is joining the church together from so many streams and denominations. In Kansas City, we host 100,000 visitors a year in and out of that little rural suburb of Kansas City. We've graduated around 7,000 students from 50 countries in our university. Beloved, I am a part of an international community of believers that believe a whole bunch of different ways than me. We have Coptic Christians come from Egypt. We've got leaders in Iran. We've got people that wear, you know, all of their cultural regalia from the nations. Beloved, it's an international family that looks a whole lot different than me. And I thank God for that. I thank God for that. Well, turn with me for just a moment. I want to look at the last thing. You can read some of these notes on your own if you would like to. But I want to conclude in the next five-ish minutes. And uh, I want to talk for a moment about the global evangelization of the world. Today we're watching God breathe on the subject of missions in an unprecedented way in the body of Christ. The world's largest evangelical missionary, ministries... The two largest evangelical missions organizations are YWAM for Christ and Campus Crusade. They have about 40,000 full-time missionaries out in the nations. And between Campus Crusade for Christ, between uh, YWAM, Urbana, and a few other missions organizations, those top key leaders are in and out of Kansas City. They suggest to us that by 2020, we'll have translated the gospel into every known tongue. Beloved, you and I live in a very unique hour of human history because never before in the earth has it been said that the gospel will have been read in every single language on the earth. And that's only five years away. It depends how you split the pie and who you talk to, but they're all within about five to seven years 
that we will accomplish the task of translating the gospel into every known tongue. Beloved, this is what we have labored for, this is what we have sown, this is what we have prayed for, and it's right in front of us. But God the Father has purposed that prior to His Son's return, He would have a remnant out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that love Him in the same way that He loves them. We know that from Revelation 5 and Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, John sees an innumerable multitude coming up out of the great tribulation, singing songs of exaltation and worship to Jesus, and the statements made that represented in this innumerable multitude is a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and land. Which tells us that the Lord will be successful in taking the gospel to every known language. Prior to Jesus' ascension, he made it clear that written into the Old Testament was God's commitment to take the gospel of the kingdom into every nation. You can turn with me just for a moment. Look at Luke 24, and I want to tell you about two people, and we'll ask the worship team to come in just a moment. In Luke 24, Jesus said this, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning first at Jerusalem. Behold, I send the promise of my Father, Terry, wait till you're endued with power from on high. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, verse 27, about God's intention to not only take the gospel to the nation of Israel, but actually to fill the whole earth with the gospel of the kingdom. Through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we believe that God is going to thrust forth workers that are fueled by the worth and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus into every corner of the earth to fill it with the gospel of the kingdom. My role in Kansas City is I get to help train missionaries how to build financial partnership teams. Last year we trained about 450 people in our classroom, and I had the privilege of coaching about 60 of them, pastoring 60 of them. But in my life in missions and understanding, do you know that there's about 6.5 billion non-believers on the earth today? About 6.5 billion non-believers. 95% of those non-believers live in a specific geographic region called the 1040 window. Do you know how many workers there are in the 1040 window? There's about 25,000 workers in the 1040 window. Which means there's about one worker to every 400,000 non-believers. It would be the equivalent of me and a half a person with the mission to reach Kansas City, which is about a million people in in our whole metro area. Do you know that out of every $100 given in North America toward missions, about a nickel of it makes it into the 1040 window? Almost entirely all of our money is going to all the reached places of the earth and totally avoiding this piece of land which stems from the tip of Africa all through into Asia and touches further over toward the coast. And in that area... 95% of those 6.5 billion non-believers live. Well, there's a lot of reasons why we don't go there, and one of them is expressly, it's in Islamic countries. And the threat of death is very, very clear. Some of these countries are 99% Muslim. There's like 2,000 known believers in some places in Turkey. Beloved, the difficulty of taking the gospel to that area has hindered much of global missions. But I believe that the Lord is raising up a company of workers that are fueled by the worth and the majesty of Christ that will be thrusted into the harvest to take the gospel into a very difficult area. I ask if our worship team would come. John G. Patton is one of my favorite missionaries. John G. Patton lived around 1824 to 1907. And he was a missionary among cannibals for about 40 plus years in the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Prior to leaving out on John's missionary launch, he was approached by an elder in the church named Mr. Dixon. 
And Mr. Dixon said to John, he goes, John, what about the cannibals? And John responded as a sharp young man, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in your years now and your own prospect is about to be laid in the grave. And there it's going to be eaten by worms. And I confess to you that if I can but live and die honoring the Lord Jesus, it doesn't matter to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. But the thing about John is that him and his wife landed on the island of Tana. They had a baby boy that was born to them, and shortly after, Mary, John's wife, came down with a severe fever. After about one week of sickness, Mary passes away, and shortly after, their baby boy dies as well, only 36 days old. John leverages his life, all of his energy, all of his assets to go out and take the gospel to a people. And within 36 days of landing, his pregnant wife gives birth, she gets sick, and their baby boy gets sick and dies. Both of them are buried on the beach. But you know what's stunning about John? He served another 40 years in the New Hebrides Islands taking the gospel, oftentimes being chased out at knife point from cannibals. Why? Because he was fueled by the worth and the majesty of Christ. And he wanted to be a part of the Great Commission. He wanted to be a part of what it was that God was doing. Whatever capacity, many of us in the room do lots of things outside of the church. We own businesses, we're stay-at-home moms, we're involved in sports, we're employees, we go to school. Beloved, Jesus wants to use you on mission in your life. He wants to use your time. He wants to use your money. He wants to use your house. He wants to use your cars. He wants to use your skills. He wants to use your understanding. He wants to use your education. He wants to use all of those things to fuel the Great Commission in Michigan and in the nations of the earth. This is what the Lord wants to do. I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me this morning. I don't want to draw this thing out any longer. I know that we've got a potluck and I apologize that I've gone a little bit over. I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. You would say, I want to be a part of the Great Commission. I want to be a part of what it is that God's doing in the earth, in my life, right here in my city, right here in my state, right here in my region, maybe in the nations of the earth. You'd say, I want to be a part. I want to be on mission with Jesus. I'm going to ask if you'd step out and come join us up front. I want to lay hands on you and encourage you this morning. You'd say, I want to be on mission. I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. Just light up across the front. That's me. I want to be a part. Oh, we love you. We want to follow you. We want to say goodbye to our mother and father. We want to love you more than we love life in this age. So we ask that you would help us. Holy Spirit, come. Ask that you would use all these precious people, all of their lives. For the Lord would say to you, surely you are significant to me. Your life is significant. Don't discount your education. Don't discount your experience. Don't discount the life that you've lived. For it's that life that I want to use to fuel the Great Commission through you. I want to use you. I'm not reluctant. I'm not withholding anything from you. Surely I will give and not take back. Surely I have given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Trust me. Step out in faith. See if I won't meet you in the going. For I will use you mightily. I will use you, says the Lord. I'll use you. I'll continue to use you. I'll give you clarity. I'll give you open doors. I'll give you favor and opportunity. You leave the stirring and the reaping up to me. You be faithful to God. 
You be faithful to share as you open up your mouth. Will I not put words in you? Will I not give you the thing to say to your neighbor? Invite them. Love on them. Care for them. Serve them. Oh, I'll use you mightily. For I have great stories that you know not of, hidden for you. As you step out and go, step out in faith and trust me, I will use you mightily, says the Lord. Father, we ask that you help us, that you give us grace this morning, that you break in power. I'm going to ask that a handful of you would come up and help us pray. Come. If you're a part of the church, if you're on the, the altar team, come. If you're a worker, come. If you love Jesus, come. Just stand in front, come. We just Our time is short. We want to encourage you. I'm excited to eat. But I want to take a moment and pray for you this morning. I want to encourage you. Come, please. If we have some people to pray, there's far too many people for us to pray for alone. Just come and stand in front of them. Lay hands on them. Agree with them. They've already said, I want to be a part of the Great Commission. Just jump in. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it all. Oh, trust me. It's going to be worth it. It'll be worth it. It's going to be worth it. I'll help you gonna be worth it all I'll use you I'll use your story says the Lord it's gonna be worth it I'll use your life it's gonna be worth it I'll use your testimony it's gonna be I'll use your story says the Lord it's gonna be worth it don't be ashamed of your story Gonna be As you share it, I'll encounter others. It's gonna be worth it all. I have great plans for you. I have great plans for you, says the Lord. I have not overlooked you, says the Lord. I see you. It's gonna be worth it I made you the way you are. Yeah.